up until 96, when the MLS originated, the only games I'd watch on TV were the World Cup. So once the MLS originated, started going to Galaxy games, this and that. And then shortly after that, I saw my dad watching a game on TV. It was United. And to this day, I just wish I wish I knew which game it was. After that day, I'd always ask my dad, uh, when's that red team playing? Hello and welcome to Manchester United States, a special podcast episode with me, Mark Sullivan, ahead of our USA preseason tour. I've been looking into Manchester United's history in the USA. Busby's ambition was to take his United team to the world, so they boarded a ship to North America. Our links to the MLS. Um, firstly, I want to say it's great to be back in Miami. I didn't have to play a game for Manchester United. It was a feather in my cap. Again, obviously, to go to a different country to, to learn and to try and prove myself. The growth of soccer. And then since, you know, 2008, really, there's been a rapid expansion. It's now double the size it was. And I've also been able to speak with our fans stateside. And, and now with, with the supporters club, I have my own piece of Manchester here with the club. It's more than a football club. It's it's family, it's friends, it's fellowship. It, mean, it means a lot, but I can't put it into words. The tour this summer is, is going to be unbelievable. As far as our North American leg of the tour goes, starting on July 22nd, United will be playing matches in New York City, San Diego, Houston and Las Vegas. For more information, you can visit our website. The link is in the show notes. I'm Wayne Barton, Manchester United author. I was surprised to learn how far back our relationship with the USA goes. Wayne will take us on a trip through time. He explains why Manchester United's relationship with the USA goes all the way back to a player called Jim Brown. In 1932, Scott Duncan was a manager of Manchester United. He was given a lot of money to try and rebuild his team. But United still had to be resourceful with trying to find players. There was a player by the name of Jim Brown. He was a really good winger, a Scottish-born but an American international, and he was playing in the North American game. He was coming back to England on a cruise ship into Liverpool. As the boat was coming in, there were a lot of scouts from other top clubs waiting for him at the dock. Um, but Duncan thought he needed to steal a march on those, so he actually hired a tugboat, went out to this cruise liner, gets on board the ship and convinces Brown to sign for the club. So by the time that the scouts are waiting for him, he's already got a Manchester United contract. And he turned out to be a quite handy player for United, actually. I think he scored 17 goals in 41 games, scored in 90 seconds of his debut. Uh, direct from a corner against Grimsby Town um, so it was well worth the effort that Duncan went to Well it's uh, the straight now the home straight to Wembley how are the team feeling? I think they're feeling very confident about the whole thing uh, I feel it, uh, United I feel under Sir Matt Busby were the English pioneers when it came to wanting to enter the European Cup when the competition was created before its invention Busby's ambition was to take his United team to the world and test them against the best sides so they boarded a ship to North America where they faced a number of local teams and Tottenham Hotspur whose team had also travelled um, before facing Aztec Club of Mexico in an exhibition in Hollywood in 1950 
Now, this first game was a glamour tie. It was a roaring success, ending 6-6. United returned to America in 1952 after winning the league title. And they took on Spurs in Toronto, where they lost 5-0. In a replay against them the next day, they lost 7-1. So spirits were kind of low and um, they actually reached LA in more positive spirits. United had arranged a double header to play against Aztec Club again, following the success of the last tour. And they're rubbing shoulders with celebrities like Jimmy Stewart and I think Clark Gable was another one. They were getting loads of pictures with them all. And so United were in a in great mood and even a better mood at half-time in the first game against Aztec because they were 1-0 up. In the second half, the referee, who was a Scottish fellow, awarded a penalty and the Mexican team went livid. The staff came onto the pitch, they were protesting. And they weren't any happier when Roger Byrne scored the penalty when it was eventually taken at full time. Um, there was another pitch invasion. So there was meant to be the second game that was going to be played and Busby insisted they didn't want the game to be played because, the, because of the trouble. But the United players were protesting and insisting that they hadn't been involved in any of the incidents. So he agreed. What followed was, thankfully, an incredible game of football. Um, United went 4-1 up. They eventually won 4-3. One local journalist described it as the finest match ever seen on the Pacific coast. The world's most popular sport, soccer. And add to that, the world's most famous team. The NASL was created with the idea of bringing soccer to America. And they over-speculated massively financially. They brought in a lot of players on massive salaries. So this was the... The first glamour period with the likes of George Best, Johan Cruyff and Pelé. The most celebrated player in the history of the game. To millions of soccer fans, he is known as Pelé. Today he joins the New York Cosmos and the North American Soccer League. Georgie Best, the enfant terrible of the soccer world, a remarkably skillful man. But the disparity in quality between a Pelé and a, 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 an American college player meant that the quality of football wasn't so great. So once these players were retiring, the actual quality of the league wasn't continuing. As a result, those who had invested heavily were not seeing their return, so a lot of franchises folded. And then the financial disaster in the league, everyone sort of left the country, or a lot of players did stay and sort of set up their own soccer schools and things like that, but the NASL folded. The decision to push to host the 1994 World Cup came with it, this drive that a domestic league would be reinstalled into the North American game, which is where the MLS came from, and obviously 1996, it, it did come back and was a massive success, and it's become the domestic league in a proper domestic league format, in which it still exists today. In the 1980s, a youth competition titled the Dallas Cup was created, the intention was to test young American players against international stars, and United accepted various invitations to the competition over the years. The players would often stay with local families like foreign exchange students, and some would talk to local press. It was kind of like a, a really early and gentle in introduction into media training in, in the late 90s for these young kids. In 2006, United accepted an invitation to play against Real Madrid in the opening game of the tournament. And it breathed new life into it as teams became more willing to travel with the enticement of facing a famous name from the world of soccer. Manchester United have since been back to the USA on several pre-season tours. 
have to do it alone here, Mata. Looks for Sanchez. Here's a chance oh, for two. That's a fantastic goal. goal. And Herrera smashing it home, left-footed. The link-up again between Mata and Sanchez. And Herrera did the rest. And this is getting better and better. United two up on Madrid. And now Fred, the little clip. Oh, fantastic. Brazilian brilliance from Fred. He brings the Rajaman Gala Stadium to their feet. Oh, great ball. Oh, he's clicked through. Flag of State down. Alexis Sanchez. It was inevitable. As soon as he went through the middle, one on one with the goalkeeper, you know he was going to find the corner. And United lead here in Los Angeles. Manchester United 1 AC Milan 0. We've learned a lot about the history of football and Manchester United in the USA, so let's get an idea of the current landscape of domestic football. Hello, I'm Joe Prince-Wright, and I'm the lead writer and editor at NBC Sports' Pro Soccer Talk, and I cover all things Premier League, US soccer, Major League Soccer, and anything in the soccer world. Joe from NBC will give us a beginner's guide to the MLS. MLS is obviously the top division in North America, so teams from both the United States of America and Canada. It has grown massively since uh, 1996 when it first started. It first started with 10 teams, and then since you know 2008, really, there's been a rapid expansion. It's now double the size it was 15 years ago. So we're now talking 29 teams spread across the entire country. Major League Soccer is very different than most uh, leagues in the world. There is no promotion and relegation. The MLS season starts around the end of Feb, start of March, and Joe tells us why. Due to mostly environmental issues about how the weather is in the state uh, during the winter months, where pretty much over half the league would not be able to play outside, um, and then obviously runs until MLS Cup, which, which can be in the fall time, November, even December sometimes. There's obviously uh, a Western Conference and an Eastern Conference where it's split up to, you know, just save travel. The Western Conference, uh, obviously, and the Eastern Conference champion will then face off in the MLS Cup final. And then, of course, the MLS Supporters Shield, which is handed out each year to the team who has the best record in terms of points and sits atop the final standings across both, both divisions. So you have a regular season champion uh, and you get the MLS Supporter Shield trophy. And then the winner of the Western Conference and Eastern Conference playoffs, they play each other in MLS Cup. So that kind of crowns the overall champion. So who are the dominant MLS teams? Traditionally, uh, LA Galaxy are the best team and the most successful. Uh, DC United as well, uh, early on, won a lot of trophies. Obviously, Wayne Rooney is there now uh, and leading them in a new era for them. And in recent years, we've seen the likes of Seattle Sounders be very successful, Toronto SC be very successful. Um, and obviously, Atlanta United have been a real success story as an expansion franchise as well. So how popular are Manchester United in the USA? Manchester United historically have been the best supported team across the USA and I can't see that changing anytime soon. I mean, there is a, a deep sort of connection to the last few decades. I think when you look at American soccer fans in general, a lot of people, not everyone, but a lot of people have been 
maybe fans for the last three, four decades. So if you look at the last, you know, 30 plus years, uh, Manchester United have been one of the most successful teams, had, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson, one of the greatest managers, if not the greatest of all time, great players, great moments. Um, and I think, you know, when you were becoming a fan of soccer in America, maybe Manchester United were one of the only teams that you could a, watch on TV, and B, they've been coming to the US and doing these tours for a long time, so you may have seen them in person and have a close connection. So, yeah, it's there's other teams in the Premier League that are kind of trying to get close to their popularity levels, uh, but Manchester United, if you go anywhere across the states, and I've been lucky enough to do so, if you go to California, New York, Florida, Texas, all over, Manchester United fans are in full force in, in any kind of Fan fest we do uh, at NBC. Uh, we have big parties to watch all the games of the weekend. Man United shirts will be everywhere. Thanks for that, Joe. Now seems like the perfect time to meet our fans stateside. Well, my name is Amani Zinga. Uh I live in Los Angeles, California, and I uh, run the official Mixed United Supporters Club of Los Angeles. Yeah, my name is Casey Kell, and we are from the, uh, San Diego, representing the Red Devils of San Diego. I'm uh, one of the founders. Yeah, my name's Sam Jones. I'm the uh, founder and chairman of Red Devils DC. It's the official supporters club here in Washington. Yeah, hi, I'm Steve Baxter, and I'm the co-founder of the Atlanta Manchester Supporters Club. Jeez, LA. I mean, there's no other city like LA. And what I tell people is... I mean, if you're looking for the most beautiful beaches, obviously there's other cities with more beautiful beaches. If you're looking for desert space, you know, in the world, there's more places with more interesting landscapes. If you're looking for mountains, there's the 10 beautiful areas before LA. But if you're looking for one place that has all of that, the beach, mountain, the desert, the food, uh, the entertainment, then LA is your city, and that's what makes LA very unique. I mean, I, I'm a Cali native, so I've been all around California. I was I was born up north, and then lived in Orange County for a while, then worked in LA, and then when that's when I moved down south to San Diego. And specifically, I'm on the island of Coronado, and uh, the quality of life here is pretty hard to beat. I snowboard a lot, and so a couple hours from the mountains, a couple hours to the desert. You know, you got wine tasting a couple of hours away, you got the airport five minutes away, you got the bay, you got the ocean, downtown, Little Italy, like life's good down here. DC is a great place to be. Uh, downtown, the, the National Mall is is absolutely breathtaking. Honestly, it's so clean down there. It's a great place to be and it's very vibrant, fast paced, a lot of um, energetic people. Even even when people come over to visit, it's a great place to show the sites, you know, White House, the, the National Mall, all that kind of stuff. It's it's a great place to be. Atlanta, it's going fast. Uh, I moved here 30 years ago. Uh, I was only supposed to be here for a year, but, you know, gosh, life happens. Uh, when I moved here, uh, there was 1.5 million people in the metro area. Today, there's just over eight. And it's a city not unlike Manchester, really. It's, it's never been too far away from very significant historical moments. It's the it's the birthplace of Martin Luther King, uh, the civil rights movement. Uh, it's been extremely influential on the music scene. And uh, you know, not long after I moved here, we had the '96 Olympics, huge success for the city. It helped put the city on the map. 
for a lot of businesses, a lot of people. It's the home of Delta, the busiest airport in the world, Coca-Cola, CNN, and it's got a reasonable cost of living. So it's becoming a, a solid choice for companies like Google and Microsoft as they expand. It's become really popular for expats, and expats love their football. So it's um, it's a great city. So why did these fans pick Manchester United? Or perhaps, why did Manchester United pick them? I really didn't have a choice in the matter. The uh, love of United was handed down to me uh, from my grandfather, uh, who became a United fan. Uh, I'm originally from Ghana, which, as you probably know, is a very uh, football uh, crazy country. Yeah, so up until 96, when the MLS originated, the only games I'd watch on TV were the World Cup. So once the MLS originated, started going to Galaxy games, this and that. And then shortly after that, I saw my dad watching a game on TV. I assumed it was MLS. It was United. And to this day, I just wish I wish I knew which game it was because they didn't air a lot of matches back then. It was it had to be a cup final or something or some game of importance. I know they won. I know they won the league in 96 in the Community Shield. But to this day, I just wish I knew which match it was. and then. After that day, I'd always ask my dad, uh, when's that red team playing? So it's all down to my dad. Uh, My dad and my granddad, both huge United fans, um, season ticket holders since forever. So originally I'm from Stockport, lived there until I was around 11, Uh, moved to the other side of Manchester to Salford for for a year and a half. And then um, dad's job took me down to Dorset until 2005 and then uh, moved stateside. Um, always been in the DC area. Originally, I did not want to be here. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so and I'm the only one left. My whole family moved back in 2010. Well, I, uh, I grew up in Manchester. I supported them my entire life. Uh, it wasn't a choice I made. It, it just happened when I reached an age, I don't know, five or six. And I, I heard the name George Best, saw him play on the television. Then came the bedspread the wallpaper, the, the bedside lamp. I can remember it like yesterday, actually. So how popular are Manchester United in the USA? Obviously, they're the biggest club in the world, and uh, the USA football, or the growth of football, soccer in, in America, is probably at its highest right now. And so when you think of all the clubs that are leading the charge in um, that popularity, Manchester United is definitely at the top of it. And they continue to grow today. I see United shirts everywhere I go. No matter where I travel, I see United shirts everywhere. Everybody comment. I've I've got a United devil on my arm and people comment on it all the time. So I get everywhere I go. I get people from all over the country come and visit us. That's usually the first thing that they do. Like, where's the Manchester United Supporters Club in Washington? And then they come down and watch the matches with us. Yeah, massive. Uh, Actually, football in general has become very popular in the USA over the past 20 years or so. Obviously, over this time, they were at the very top of their game and that was attractive to a a lot of young people as they got to learn about the sport. But I think what's really impressive is that it isn't just about when we were winning under Sir Alex. There's a genuine interest that the fans have here in the rich history of the club. Uh, They want to learn about the Busby Babes, they go to Munich, they they feel the rivalries between the clubs. Um, and I'm serious, there are fans here who've never been outside the country, let alone England, Manchester, Old Trafford. They've never been. But they hate Leeds and they hate Liverpool. <laughs> they don't quite understand why. They just do. Uh, such is their immersion that they've had 
in Manchester United. They read everything. They talk to everybody. They are truly passionate about the uh, about the club. Well, I've got friends here, uh, friends for a long, long time, who started the, the the Liverpool Supporters Club, the Chelsea Club, the Arsenal Supporters Club. Massive turnouts. Football is huge, uh, but there wasn't a Manchester United club. And so, to be fair, it really wasn't my idea. It was sort of their idea. They, I think, they wanted they wanted a bit more rivalry, something to pick on. So I started it with a with a mate of mine, Barry. And uh, Barry was the opening manager of a new Irish bar here called Fado Midtown. And uh, our very first meetup was the day it opened, uh, which is where we watch the matches today. We've grown to become now one of the biggest supporters clubs in the U.S. We do an annual Legends Weekend every year. Uh, we've had Paul Scholes, Brian Robson, Dennis Irwin, Gary Palliser, David May, Norman Whiteside, Quinton Fortune, uh, all over here as I guess. People flying from all over the world to attend. Uh, so the club is, I think, really well respected. It's really well known, uh, really well supported. And um, yeah, they couldn't ask for more, really. So the Los Angeles uh, Manchester United Supporters Club has been around since 2011. The original pub no longer exists. They went out of business, unfortunately. Um, but we've been able to partner with a new pub called O'Brien's in Santa Monica, uh, right there on Wilshire Boulevard. Um, the owner is a diehard United fan himself, uh, Will uh, Sullivan. O'Sullivan, a great guy, and uh, he's definitely wel- welcomed us in. It's a lot to ask of a venue to open at 4.30 in the morning. Uh, they're having to pay for staff. They can't serve liquor, which is their the bulk of their business. And so it really has to come from passion to be able to do that for us. And he does that every game. This place called Liberty Called Distilling was the only place to really open up for us, welcome us with open arms. They're great. We have custom menus, custom glasses, uh, Boddington's and Guinness on draft. So, yeah, it's, it's, been, a, it's been a fun few years for sure. We started in 2015, uh, randomly. I happened to be at our old bar, uh, Lucky Bar in DuPont Circle, uh, with a couple of mates of mine, uh, watching the Manchester Derby. Uh, luckily, we won. <laughs> so so, so uh, we ended up winning. And uh, I actually saw that there was a Manchester City supporters club that went there. And it got me thinking. And I was like, where do the United fans go? So I did a little bit of research online. And it turns out there wasn't one in D.C. They were all over the place, New York, Philly, Boston, L.A., nothing in D.C. So, you know, a couple of days later, I was bored at home, and um, that's how Red Devils D.C. was born. It was the start of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and um, that's how we began. And a couple of weeks after that, we uh, we had our first match as a, as a, as a club. We had five people, and we lost 4 nothing away to Everton. <laughs> so I was like, I was like, oh, this is never going to work. Um, uh, but I kept plugging away, kept pl- this was towards the end of the season. Um, so, but kept plugging away. You know, a couple more people would show up and all that sort of stuff. And then the start of the next season, uh, we had about fifty people come to the bar. So I was like, all right, maybe, maybe there's something. And then by the end of that season, uh, we ended up winning the FA Cup under Louis. And we had 200 plus in there and it was a great time. You know, escalated from there. We we, we had the tour the following season. We put on a huge tailgate with uh, with some of the other supporters clubs in the area. Uh, you know, New York, Baltimore, Philly, Boston, Denver, 
and others uh, all came together and we had a huge, huge party before the Barcelona match here in the tour of 2017. Um, that just catapulted us from there. And now now we actually go to a different bar. It's uh, Solace Outpost in Navy Yard. And we get hundreds of people every single game. It's it's an absolute blast in there. I've met so many great people and so many good friends to this day um, through this through this club. As, as I said earlier, I mean, people when when they, whether they move here or they come in here on holiday or just to visit for business. I mean, we get a lot of people coming here on business. Obviously, with it being Washington D.C., we get loads of people, and what usually the first thing that they do is is look us up and they they want to know where the United fans go and. Uh, come and watch the matches with us. I mean, we've 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 had people get together and and date. I, I know one marriage that has come out had come out of this group, and there's there's a couple of United babies because of it. Who, who needs the apps when you've got me, right? So there you go. <laughs> we've we've had marriage proposals at half time in the pub. Uh, I've seen it all. Um, a couple of friends who are dating now met through the club. Um, one of my best friends, uh, Will, who's also become my travel buddy to Old Trafford. Uh, I met through the club. And so there's definitely a camaraderie that builds when you're meeting up with the same people. People don't understand how we can wake up, you know, at 4.30 to go watch a football game. People don't understand the impact on our emotional well-being for the rest of the weekend if we lose. Um, but those who show up at the pub understand and we share that bond and, um, I've been to weddings and, uh, christenings of friends that met through, uh, the club of, um, graduation parties, birthday parties. We spent Thanksgivings and Christmases together. So, um, over the last, you know, 13, 12, 13 years, definitely, um, developed some really long lasting uh, friendships through the club. I don't know if we've any if we've sparked any romantic relationships yet. Oh, actually, we have. Uh, yeah, at, at the last pub, um, my friend Brian met his his wife there. So, and they they just welcomed the new baby in the world. So, I guess I guess one. But yeah, I mean, as far as just normal relationships, oh yeah, we we've made ton of friends. I'm I'm very excited to. We have something big planned for the San Diego match. You know. Whether it be a, a a cruise around the around the bay before the before after the match and after party and obviously Vegas we got a group of people to go so it's gonna be it's gonna be fun. I tell people all the time. I mean, you know, this group brings everybody together, and we wouldn't know one another if it wasn't for this. So enjoy it. It's 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 great. We're now going to focus on football fan culture in the States. Earlier, Sam from Washington, D.C. mentioned tailgating. We are heading back to Sam for an explanation. There's a huge culture here called tailgating, which uh, is, is the equivalent of going to the pub before the game. Um, so, you, you know, you, you park up with your car, open open the tailgate, um, grill, you know, beers, play play some games and stuff like that. That's a huge culture here, which I think is tra- can come over from NFL games, but it, it, it transcends into the, the the MLS matches too. Nowadays, Solace, our home bar, happens to be the closest bar to Audi Field, 
DC United used to go to RFK. They just moved to Audi Field a couple of seasons ago. So we're right in the shadows of Audi Field and uh, Nats Park, which is the baseball stadium here. Um, so it's very popular before the games. Um, so, you know, grab a couple of beers before that, walk on over and uh, watch the game. We've got fans in our group that will remain nameless, that are, that are so passionate that we, we almost need our own stewards around them to maintain order, right? Um, and then there are others who sort of sit happily with an imposing fan, they're discussing the merits of the game, they're having a beer, they're wearing each wearing their home shirt as it's happening. You know, you know for sure, uh, like here, um, I don't think there's the intensity of the rivalry that exists, let's say, between uh, Liverpool fans and United fans, uh, Millwall fans and West Ham fans, uh, you know, where it's not just about the football, right? It's, it's about the turf. Uh, and, and I think that the concept of away fans and everything that, that brings to the game is, is really missing here in the U.S., uh, you know, in the U.S., your closest rivals are hundreds of miles away, where in the U.K., they're, they're literally down the street, right? You know, if you look at the proximity of, say, Liverpool and Everton, I mean, it's just down the road. And it, it creates an atmosphere that, that is quite different. And that comes into, I think, every element of the game. And you talk about, um, like, pre-gaming. You know, t- the tailgating, the tailgating uh, culture here is is huge, and it, and it, it's great. I mean, like people roll up hours and hours and hours before a game, and they're cooking, and there's the barbecuing, and and you know having a beer, and it, it, it's terrific. And it's it's uh, it's actually a real, it's a family thing as well, as much as anything. And you know, in, in Manchester, you know we. You know, we go to the Bishop Blaze and we spill a few lagers on each other and we, we sing some songs and, you know, and then we then we go to the match and we eat a greasy hamburger and a hot dog and we, you know, we spill ketchup down ourselves. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a little bit different, but I, I think the experience in both countries is something that both should see. We, we have we have a few uh, gentlemen in our... Uh, actually, one, one guy, Tony Hughes, he's from Manchester. He, he just... He lives Manchester United. That's that's all he's about, and he's uh, he's part of the leadership crew. And we have a few other gentlemen from England that are in the Red Devils. And yeah, I think the the only difference I see to them is that you have to be drinking a pint, <laughs> no matter if it's four a.m., six a.m., eight a.m. Some Americans might might pass on that because they have to work or they choose coffee, but. Yeah, if you're British, you're you're drinking. You know, I I would say they're every bit as passionate. It's it's a very different dynamic, but it, it, as far as the passion goes, it, it's exactly the same. Um, we wake up at six o'clock in the morning for those early early kickoffs. Um, you know, the, the the beer helps, obviously. You know, grabbing a beer with your, with your mates for for match days, but um, you know, they're every bit as passionate as as fans back at back in Manchester. Um, I can't even imagine guys on the west coast that have to wake up even three hours before we do in the uk football has been around for generations and so so your support of a football team is deep in family history and family rivalry and 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 so i think it's just different just because it's been around for so long it would be blasphemy to support another team you know or to date someone you know who supports another team and so I think that's where it's a little different here in, in the U.S. Um, to go to New York. But, but I, I like the culture of LAFC. Um, and I think that's what makes it different is that because it's a fairly new expansion team, um, most of the people who have come on board have been able to 
invest into growth um, when it was nothing. And so the feelings of the diehard fans for LAFC might be somewhat similar to having supported uh, a club in Europe and the UK for your whole life. Amani has mentioned her local team, LAFC. Let's hear more about that and the other MLS teams of our overseas fans. Yeah, so when I first moved to LA again, I was looking for a local football team to support. And uh, unfortunately, LA Galaxy was a bit of a hype uh, for me. So I never really felt the affinity um, uh, for the Galaxy. And so even though I watched the MLS, I wasn't really as uh, involved in it until, you know, about uh, eight years ago, uh, LAFC uh, was announced. And LAFC is a stone's throw away for me. And I like the idea of becoming a fan of a club from the ground before a name existed, before the colors were chosen. I feel very, very part of that uh, history of that club. And uh, so love the El Trafico uh, rivalry between LAFC and Galaxy. Well, because there's, there's a lot of traffic in, you know, in LA. So, um, you know, in most cities, when people say, how far are you from somewhere? You say, oh, I'm, you know, a mile away, two kilometers, something like that. In LA, uh, you describe distance in terms of time. How far are you? Oh, two o'clock in the afternoon, half an hour, five o'clock, I'm an hour away. <laughs> oh, London United is huge success. Um, the rising popularity of football over the last 20 years or so. Uh, well, it, it's been on all fronts, really. And, it's probably the fastest growing sport played by kids in school. Uh, there's been an exponential rise in supporters, joining supporters clubs, uh, meeting up in pubs, watching their teams, usually foreign, right? And it, this has all created this, uh, this pent up demand for cities to have their own football team. Uh, it's a bit of a different model in the US versus, um, versus Europe. It's franchised here and uh, United, Atlanta United, they had over 70,000 supporters just ready to go uh, before the match was uh, was even conceived. And I, I remember the very first match I was there. It was insane. They're as passionate about Atlanta United as, as I am about Manchester United, and, it, and it's phenomenal to see. Uh, they have an average attendance now of about 47,000 people, which, you know, if you put that in Premier League terms, that's about number seven, number eight, might be above Liverpool. I'm not sure. I... Definitely have a soft spot for Chicharito. Um, incredible guy, really nice guy. Um, but he plays for the wrong team here in LA. So while he was a United, you know, I had my full support. But uh, in LA, I'm sorry, it's uh, it's Vela. Oh, I've been I've been a Galaxy uh, supporter since 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 '96, since it started. Got to support the local teams, right? So I'm a I'm a, I'm a DC United fan. Former Ed Chicharito has been mentioned a couple of times by our fans. Let's look into other former United players who've made a major impact on the MLS, starting with Wayne Rooney, former player and current manager of DC United. 
yeah, absolutely. It's great to have him here. Um, he's, uh, I think he's doing a good job. Um, he's, he's, he came into a bit of a difficult situation. Uh, the team was team was struggling when he took him on, and he's got a lot of a lot of young players on that team. Um, but he seems to be stamping his authority on that, which I'm not surprised with with Waza. Yeah, there's no doubt that every single United player that has come and played in the MLS has contributed to this explosion uh, of popularity. George Best, right? Um, you know, played for San Jose Earthquakes. And um, if you haven't seen this, uh, Google it. But he scored one of the best goals, right, I've ever seen um, when they played Fort Lauderdale. In the early 80s, I think it was like 81, I think. I'm sort of aging myself, I'm guessing a little bit. Where, you know, he's screaming for the ball, he gets the ball, he just takes it on his own, he goes past, I don't know, like four, five, six defenders, something like that, and pops it in the goal. Best maneuvering unbelievably. Best still has it, I don't believe this move. He's ah! That's the greatest soccer goal I've ever seen. <laughs> it's amazing. And I mean, he sort of set the he set well. George Best also sets the bar, doesn't he? Right, but but it started really there, didn't it? I think, and you know, since then, who have we had? Nani away from Matter, still Nani. Nani, oh, brilliant! Bastion, Weinsteiger's flick, nice touchdown. Slatan, Ibrahimovic, Ibrahimovic, yes! And then Rooney, Wayne Rooney onto his right foot, Rooney. Right now, this man is a goal-scoring machine. Oh my God, back to goals. You see Rooney's, uh, you know, watch Rooney when he played DC. He ran back half the pitch, tackled, got the ball, lobbed it all the way back. You know, the header went in for the goal. Absolute genius. And look, number one, Beckham. Taha goes back on the post, but it's a brilliant goal from Beckham. Well, maybe the party is starting. I was just down. blown away that he was actually coming here to the MLS. Beckham and the MLS, it's, it's, uh, is, is, it, is it fair to say that the MLS wouldn't be where it is today without Beckham and, um, and, and what he did? Maybe it's a stretch, I don't know. And now here he is, he's an owner of one of the clubs. I'd like to welcome Inter-Miami co-owners Jorge Mas and David Beckham. Um, firstly, I want to say it's great to be back in Miami. Um, we're very excited to go into this next season. In terms of my generation, of course, um, David Beckham was one of the few players who not only had the talent and the quality on field, but the appeal off the field. And he uh, was able to bridge that gap between celebrity status and football player, right? And obviously, Chicharito's done done amazing. Great chance! Oh, it's 3-3! It's Chicharito! And the comeback kings have produced something. So um, I think the relationship between Manchester United and players in the MLS is uh, will forever be in history. Whilst we're on the topic of former Reds in the USA, we've been able to speak to someone who can offer us a detailed insight into George Best's time in the country. I'm Antonio Simões. I played for Benfica from 1959 to 75. Antonio played against United in that famous match in 1966 when George Best announced himself to the world. Best almost single-handedly destroyed Benfica, helping Manchester United to a 5-1 win in the European Cup quarter-final second leg. Before this, Benfica were unbeaten at home in European competition. We thought that we had a chance playing home. But the problem is 
that yours best company, they got mad. <laughs> and then they expressed all that talent, special George. You cannot stop him doing the fantasy, that all these things, all right? Antonio also played against Manchester United in the European Cup final two years later. This was United's first ever European Cup success. United are on the march to Wembley, and after seeing off the likes of European giants Real Madrid along the way, Matt Busby's babes look to be the first English side to conquer Europe. But it will be no mean feat, as Eusebio's Benfica stand in their way. Antonio went on to coach George Best at San Jose Earthquakes towards the end of his career in the 1970s. Uh, when we came to United States, when Bill Falls was coaching San Jose Earthquakes, California, the president of the club, Mr. Milan Mandarich, asked me to help Bill Falls. And George Best is there. I, I think... The American in that time was a perfect country for him. All right. Why? Because it was free. Uh, because he, nobody going to watch him, what he's going to do or not. Um, he played the game with this love that he got. Uh, um, he, he had a lot of fans as well. So he had an incredible world around him. But... Over there was less pressure, uh, less obligation, maybe to be in home 10 o'clock uh, p.m. You know what I'm saying? It was free. And because this ability, incredible talent, right? It doesn't make to training very much. For what? Right? He didn't play every game. Uh, one time we were waiting for him to go to L.A. He didn't show up in the airport. <laughs> we didn't know where's George. Uh, yeah. And they were very concerned. Milan Mandarich, the, the owner of the team, just said, what is George? What is George? Antonio finished by telling us why his time in North America was so special. Even today, I still feel that it was very important for me the 20 years that I live in the United States. Why? Because I learned not just to be a player because I was too old, but to be a coach, to be a general manager, to be a leader, to uh, learn a language, and the language of sports. Not just the language of soccer. No, no. A language of sports. Because I was watching American football or and. BA or whatever, how to sell the game, how to receive the people, how you make the show. You're talking about 70s, 80s, it's a long time ago. They're still the best. Continuing the focus on Manchester United's links with the USA, let's hear from the one and only Wayne Rooney. He spoke to DC United about his decision to return to the club, but this time as head coach. Go to a different country to to learn, um, to try and prove myself. Um, I'm still a, a young manager, young coach who wants to improve, wants to get better, and one day want to manage at the top level. Um, I felt it was it was the right time for me to come back and 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 try and give what I can off the field um, to the players and try and improve them. 
You haven't gotten the itch to go back and play out there? You don't feel that, that need when no, you're on the uh, sidelines? No, um, no, I've put a bit too much weight on um, <laughs> to do that at the minute. But no, listen, I've, I've really enjoyed management. I've, yeah. I've enjoyed um, that side of the game and trying to improve myself, trying to improve the players, but also trying to improve the staff and the coaches. Um, everything we're doing is for them players to go out and perform. one former Red to another. Tim Howard spoke to the United podcast team, Sam, Helen and Maisie, back in 2021 about his move to Old Trafford. I, I got a phone, I got a phone call. I was at, I was at uh, US National Team training camp and, you know, as Manchester United do, they have they have the, the secret codes to everything in the world. They've, I, got a, I, got a, I got a call on my hotel um, phone and it was, uh, it was Tony Coton and just, you know, the goalkeeper coach at Man United back then and he said, "Look, we have an eye on you. We want to have a, We want to, you know, look at you and keep keep kind of pursuing this. And you don't have, really have to do anything. Don't call us back. We'll just, you know, we'll, we'll keep an eye and get in touch. That was it. I didn't have to play a game for Manchester United. That was, it was a feather in my cap. Like Manchester, United, it's looking at me like this is yeah. great, you know. But again, I was so young. There was no, there was no build up. There was no like, oh, this this team in Belgium called or this team in, in Norway called, and then you'll play there for a few years. And oh, now Manchester United. It was I was playing." one season as a starter for for uh, the Metro Stars. So it was pretty crazy. So I think people that are from uh, are from somewhere that isn't England or America assume, because we all speak English, that the cultures are the same. But of course, they're not. They're really different. Yes. And I suppose you would have experienced that when you lived here. Now, we all know that the Ameri- in America, you say soccer instead of football, yes. right? Did you ever find that difficult? Because I assume people, certainly when you came here, people took for granted that... You uh, you understood and used mm. the slang that was used here, as opposed to say, yeah. like for example, if you were like, "Yeah, what a great shout," and then yeah. people maybe looked at you like you had three heads. Yeah, in fact, the, the day I signed for Manchester United, I turned up and I had a suit on, and uh, the press officer said I looked smart, and I had never heard that before. Not because I don't think I was smart, but because it sounded strange when she said. You look smart, and I didn't. I was, okay, I guess I look intelligent. So that was my problem. <laughs> <laughs> my 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 first foray into like w- what that is, what a Britishism is, and I had to learn quickly. Tim Howard explains what it takes to make it as a soccer player in the states. You, you'd need ten podcast episodes to to get it sorted, but we it's a, we have a pay to play model. So a lot of you know when when you know when we talk about like with David when we think about. Where are, where, where does Wayne Rooney come from? Where does this, they come mm-hmm. from the street, they come from the streets and they're self-made and they basically stand on the side of, of, of a Sunday league begging their uncle and their dad to put them in and they figure out how to climb the ranks. In America, it's all who has the most money, who can pay for registration and kits, uniforms, travel, you know, you, you gotta have money. You gotta have money to travel and to do all these things. And, but for me, yeah, I had, there was a goalkeeper coach who ran a local, session basically in a park at a local school and uh you know took me under his wing and just thought I, I had a little bit of something and kind of molded me and shaped me and became my mentor back then it wasn't a roadmap for a 16 year old it was just a dream it wasn't like oh I, I live I live in Merseyside so my dream is to get into the Liverpool Academy mm-hmm. or the Everton Academy there, there there wasn't that pathway so my dream was just like I want to play professional soccer you know people where I don't know how I don't know you know it was just not it was just kind of a dream this might explain why the men's national team so far struggled to dominate on the international stage. But let's not forget, 
that the USA do have a World Cup winning team. Last month on the United podcast, our women's first team manager Mark Skinner gave us his thoughts. He used to live in the USA, managing the first team of Orlando Pride. The female athletes are female athletes before they're soccer players. In in college, they're only allowed to do football, soccer for a certain amount of time of the year. Then they're doing other sports and other athletics. So they build this really athletic, athletic frame. And what another thing, I think the college structure with how competitive it is and the fact that you might be 17, 18, deciding to go to university, you got to travel six hours on a plane and live in a totally different state that is almost like a different country. They have different laws within their state. And so you grow up. I mean, me, me, I went to a college that was a mile down the road. Like I didn't, I just got on a bus. I went to the college. Like it's those factors that drag you away. Actually, they have that much to get through, many players to get through that actually by the time you got to the top, you're a refined mental athlete. It's the culture. We're a, we're a real footballing country. Like it's, it's in our blood. It's in our kids' faces when they're... Over there, there's so much rivalry that actually, if you are in that sport, it's because you're driven to be in that sport. Amani from LA also shares her thoughts. I would guess that we could agree with the disparity in men's and women's sports over all sports, right? And I think whereas the pool is diluted for men's sports, so you have basketball, you have tennis, you know, you have hockey, you have, you know, American soccer, American football. There has been less opportunity for women to become professional athletes in other sports. And so I think the two leading women's sports in America have been soccer and basketball. And so it's easier to channel the most talent towards two sports versus spreading thin over six or seven different sports in, in the men's. Amani raises a good point. Soccer has a lot of competition from other sports in the USA but Steve from Atlanta gives us his thoughts on how the sport is catching up. 20 years ago, football football was the preferred sport of like 2% of the population. Today, um, depending on the numbers you read, it's like 8%. It's still, you know, still pretty small, but compare that with baseball. You know, in the 1960s and 70s, 34% of the population would say that their favorite sport is, is baseball. You know, today it's like, nine percent baseball is as popular as football uh, in america and and who would have seen that coming there's definitely a new kid on the block when it comes to sports and 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 that's that's football i think the world cup is a huge deal here because it doesn't happen very often and i think each world cup in the united states it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and it becomes more of an event i have people texting me who's never watched the sport ever Hey, did you see that goal from a Charleston? And I'm like, you've never watched this sport in your life. Uh, everybody gets really up for World Cup, but now with the the way that the uh, the Premier League is shown here, uh, we don't we don't miss a game. I get to watch more matches than my my dad does, it's, which is incredible. The growth has been tremendous. I've, I've just seen it on a on an upward trajectory constantly, and it's still it's still growing to this day. I mean, this the tour this summer is is going to be unbelievable. Remember Joe from NBC? Major League Soccer is very different than most uh, leagues in the world. He gives us his thoughts on what North America can offer professional football players. I wonder if he'll agree with Antonio's views on George Best. Over there was less pressure. 
it was free. I think the US, Canada and MLS as a whole can offer. It's strange to say, but some players love to go and they can blend in the cities. And it's a big enough country where they move to a big market like Thierry Henry did in the past. He could jump on the subway in Manhattan and wouldn't really get noticed. And I think you can still be a superstar at the weekend and when you're playing, but outside of the pitch, it's a wonderful lifestyle. Um, and you can uh, maybe just have a very different experience to living in Europe or living uh, in England and playing in the Premier League. I think the main thing for American players is that MLS has become a really stable league and given them opportunities from a young age to develop their talent and then head to Europe if they want to. But uh, we're seeing a lot more U.S. national team players now staying uh, in Major League Soccer and playing their trade week in, week out. And I think we may get to a point uh, in the future, uh, maybe not anytime soon, but maybe 10, 15 years from now, where the likes of a Christian Pulisic or a Weston McKenney or a Tyler Adams will come through an MLS and stay there for their entire career. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's really exciting time for soccer in Canada and the USA. And of course, the World Cup coming up in 2026, being hosted by Mexico, USA and Canada as a whole. So that is the North Star for everything when it comes to soccer stateside. And that's when we really will see all the culture, all the growth they've had since the World Cup in 94 and MLS starting in 96. I think in 2026, when that World Cup kicks off, to be able to show the world and players and fans around the world what they have become. And it really has been special to see the journey so far. Gone are the days where, you know, the MLS was considered the retirement league. I mean, it's almost like a second beginning because they get to play on a whole new stage in front of a lot of people that might have no idea who they are. You know, like, I don't know, like Robbie Keane was a good example, you know. People who know soccer, I was very excited for Robbie Keane to come play. Um, a lot of people just thought he was just this older European or Irish guy and didn't know much about him. It, it has a bit of a reputation as being the place where the world's best go to finish their career. Uh, but I think there's hope, right? we got Christian Pulisic, um, Almiron, talking about Atlanta United. Um, Almiron came from Atlanta uh, United, gone to Newcastle. Brilliant player. Right, nobody can argue with that. Um, Alfonso Davis is doing really well. He's been doing well in the Bundesliga, and, and you know, it's not just the players. Um, the MLS, I think, offers management uh, talent a chance to apply their trade and get noticed as well. Let me give you one example again, sticking to Atlanta. I'm sure there are other examples, but Darren Eels came from uh, Spurs. I think he was their club secretary or director of football or something. I think he was their club secretary. Um, he came to Atlanta as their president, did a fantastic job, and now he's back in England. He's the CEO of Newcastle now. Let's finish by focusing on Manchester United again. What does the club mean to our fans in the USA? Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> I, geez, that's a big question. Uh, what does it mean to me? It's it's more than just the football team. It's more than just the game. It's it's a lifestyle, right? It's it's part of um, being mentioned. The football club touches every aspect of my life. Uh, fun fact: my daughter's first sentence uh, that she uttered when she was a kid basically was, "Mommy, are you frustrated because Manchester United lost?" <laughs> well, I think it's 
I think it's evolved over time. You know, when I was younger, watching them play, uh, it would it would motivate me to to go to practice earlier and stay later, and, and it meant superior quality. I don't know perfection, something like that. I think I I, I think it's changed now. I'm still trying to figure out what it's changed into. Now it's it mean it means a lot, but I can't put it into words. Everything. It's more than a football club. It's it's family. It's friends. It's fellowship. Uh, it's the past. It's the future. Um, you know, staying with the Atlanta supporters group. You know, Manchester United has been a, a such a catalyst for uh, for the supporters club that we've created. It's brought people together. It's forged friendships, uh, literally lifelong relationships. It, it's more than football. It, it truly is. It truly is everything. Uh, and I, I I think about some of my closest relationships and. Some of the um, uh, some of the, the the best moments I've had, you know, like over the years, the football club has been not too far away from that. Uh, it means everything to me. I mean, the memories that I have going with my dad uh, throughout the nineties, um, he showed me the way, and, and now with with the supporters club, I have my own piece of Manchester here with the club, uh, Red Devils DC. It, it means everything. It will until the day I die.